Please stand for the scripture reading. Today we will be in Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. This is on page 492 of the Blue Bibles. If you do not have a Bible at home, please take one of these homes as a gift. This is Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to them and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Delmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousands, how many, how many baskets full of the broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, twelve. And the seven for the four thousands, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Thus says God's word. Let's pray over what we've heard. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the source, that you are the essence of the bread of life. That God, when it, when we come to that terrible realization that we have nothing, God, you supply for us in abundance. And we thank you for that. And yet, Lord, in the the vast display of your goodness and your provision, your kindness to us that is so undeserved, Lord, we must confess that often our heart, our hardened hearts are impervious to the truth of your power, the truth of your redemption, the truth of your provision. And so, Lord, we have no recourse but to cry out to you and say, help us who are so weak, who are so dull of hearing, help us 
make us able to understand, make us able to see with the eyes that you've given us, to hear with the ears that you've given us. So, Lord, we we ask you to do this miracle in us through the power of your word this morning. God, I ask that you would just cause us all to stand at attention in, in your word, Lord, and to hear what you have to say, the gracious promises that you will bestow on us, the orders that you will give us to follow and to march according to. God, I pray for myself, Lord, that that I would not be a distraction to those ends, Lord, but I would be able to speak as the oracle of God and, and to lay your expectations, your promises, your commandments before your people in a way that will bring life and not discourage, in a way that will cause people to grow and not to shrink, Lord. So I ask you for this help, Lord, because I know the weakness and frailty of my own faith, my own heart, Lord. And God, we just turn our attention to you and what you've said and the glory of what you've said. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. It is so, so, so good to be back with you. Thank you for the uh, the uh, freedom to take a couple of weeks and kind of catch our breath a little bit. It, we we did that, and it was a good time. I want to say especially thank you to uh, Pastor David and to Gabriel for bringing the word from Mark, and um, I, I thought that was really good. I've got to listen um, uh, to most of what they've said at this point, and, and just really so grateful for both of those men um, and the way that they've just kind of kept the, the narrative going. Um, I also want to just take uh, time to remind you tonight, one of the things that I love about our church is the times that we get together and have fellowship. And tonight we will be meeting at 530 at Barbara Hinojosa Park. You may say where, but uh, we've got directions for you or an address in the bulletin. So make sure you get that and it'll be on the screens afterwards. Um, it's kind of off of 19th and Iola and um, we hope you'll all make it that. It, what we're doing tonight is just asking you to bring food for your family, a little picnic, and just so we can hang out together. There are rumors that a volleyball game will be started and um, so uh, we want to, we want you to come and just have fun with us. If you want to play, great. If you don't want to play, just hang out and talk to us and, and enjoy that time of fellowship. And then one last thing I feel like it's important enough to take the time to let you know about um, next month, and I was trying to find in my phone the dates. I have them written down elsewhere, and so I apologize for that. But next month, we are going to be having a, a class for membership. Um, and um, for those of you that, uh, many of you, uh, have been coming to Northridge Life for some time now and have not yet uh, joined us as as members of our church. We, we take that very, very, very seriously for reasons that we'll enumerate for you in the class. And so we really want to encourage you to take that step. We we uh, uh, The classes are just about you finding out what that entails, and then um, you can consider whether you are ready to make that commitment. Uh, but we encourage you to make that commitment. It's very important to us. So we will have those dates um, for you by next week. We may even send out an email this week so you can prepare for that, especially if you're not haven't already done that, so we want you to do that. So enough of all of those sort of things. Let's get into the text. Um, in the text today that Gloria read us, you may have picked up on the fact that we have a story that is incredibly similar to one that we've already heard in the book of Mark. How many of you noticed that when you when you heard what was read? Anybody notice that, that there, this was similar to something we'd already heard? 
Yet in this story, as composed, as, as opposed to that story, there are some important differences, and we're going to do our best to take notice of those differences. And in the process, I want you to notice there are three acts in the text that Gloria read, and, and in the, those three acts, I want you to notice first, all of our proneness, the, the, our tendency towards disbelief, all of us. Second, I want you to notice that that we are all subject to persecution by unbelievers. And then lastly, I want you to notice that, that, that there is a, almost an inescapable pervasiveness of unbelief that we are all challenged with. And we're going to apply all of this practically in the end by earnestly learn, learning how we together might instead pursue true and lasting belief, that we can become more grounded in our faith and in our belief. So, this, this previous story in Mark 6, two chapters ago, verses 30 through 44, we encountered the story of Jesus as he was followed by a large crowd. The Bible tells us it was 5,000 men plus women and children, could have been as many as, say, 20,000 people. And they followed him into the wilderness where he had gone to rest. He'd gone away from the homes and the villages that had been pressing against him and crowding him the whole time of his ministry. And Mark says when he sees this crowd that has has followed him, that he's moved with compassion, just like it says in this story, because he sees them as sheep with no shepherd. He knew that the, the, the shepherds of Israel had failed them. And so the Bible says that he sat and, and begins to teach them many things. Well, that goes on and on. And the disciples become concerned that as Jesus teaches the crowd, the hour is growing late and the people have nothing to eat. There were no food trucks. There were no, you know, there wasn't a catering service for them. And, and they have nothing to eat. They're soon going to need food. So their solution is to shut down the meeting so that the people can head back to the surrounding towns and villages and buy for themselves, find for themselves sustenance. Jesus, however, looks his disciples dead in the eyes and he says, you give them something to eat. Now, they're obviously flabbergasted at the impossibility of his command. Like, how on earth are we supposed to do that? So Jesus has them collect what food they find and bring it to him, and it amounts to nothing more for possibly 20,000 people than five loaves of bread and two small fishes. But Jesus, that, that passage in Mark 6 tells us that Jesus takes it, he blesses it, he breaks it, and, and, and they distribute it to that entire crowd. And, and the Bible tells us in Mark 6.42 that they all ate and were satisfied. In the aftermath of this miracle, the disciples collect 12 baskets full of leftovers. So Christ here in this original text in Mark 6, he demonstrated that he is a God of abundant supply. Has anyone here discovered God to be a God of abundant supply? He also shows himself to be the one who still in this day feeds his wandering people with bread, even in the desert. What does that point back to you? Do you remember what he had done for Israel so many years prior when he fed them with manna in the, in the wilderness, manna from heaven? He's showing them the exact same thing. He's saying, I am that God. In the text today, we encounter some differences. The, the crowd is slightly smaller 
But the problem is just as big. Now, if you were in that same position, would you say, man, there's 4,000 people we got to come up with food for, but at least it ain't 5,000. No, it's a huge problem to have. On this day, the recognition of the people's need doesn't originate with the disciples saying, hey, Jesus, shut this down because we got to feed these people. No, it, it, it originates with Jesus himself. He says, I have compassion. They've been with me three days. And that's the other thing that the, the crowd in this case that's here in the wilderness with Jesus and the disciples doesn't consist mostly of Jews like in the last story. It consists mostly of Gentiles among whom Jesus had been ministering lately. Now, what faith is demonstrated by these outcasts of Israel? They have no reason and really uh, by some people's uh, perceptive perception, no right to be there in the first place. But what faith is demonstrated by them? See, the the events of Mark six take place on one single day. The boat shows up. Jesus goes out. He starts to teach. It gets late. The people need food. But here, Jesus says that the people have been staying with him, listening to his gospel for Three full days. That's amazing to me. If I just all of a sudden got inspired and decided to keep this going for 72 hours, how many of you by the showing of hands are here with me till the end? Come on, build my faith. Come on. Come on. Come on. We're, we do, we've got a long way to go here today. It's three days. Whatever food they might have brought has long since been expended. They have nothing left. It's true that our commitment to Jesus often includes by the very nature of of committing ourselves to follow Jesus that it includes loss and it includes suffering. But the promise of God is that he's watching all that and that he's keeping careful accounts and that there will be no losses on the books in the last day. If you expend it all, God knows. But in the last day, the hungry will be filled. The rejected will be loved. The homeless will be sheltered. In the end... Anything that you've laid on the altar of Christ, you will discover was never really lost at all. Jesus says as much to his own disciples in Mark 10. He says, I truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Well, what does that mean? That we're going to have many, many new family members? Yes. Look around you. Look around you. The idea of the gospel, the Bible says that God takes solitary people and places them in families. And so some of you that have seen wedges come between you and your family because you followed Christ, look around you. He's provided for you brothers, sisters, mothers, and fathers that will, that will go with you all the way to the end to heaven. And in the end, any loss that you've had, anything that you've expended, 
will be seen to be washed away in the flood of eternal life that you're given. See, Christ's intent in this second event was to thoroughly prove that he was the bread of life, not just for Jews only but also for Gentiles as well. What's happening here in the demonstration that he gives both with the Jews and the Gentiles? He was broken. His grace would be multiplied for every nation of the world, Jew and Gentile. He would nourish believing souls with eternal life. And this... This grace flowing from Christ to Jews and Gentiles would redefine the concept of who the people of God are forever. The curious feature of this text, however, is the disciples, isn't it? What did they see? We don't know the time frame between Mark 6 and Mark 8, but what did they see? Can you imagine that if you saw Jesus miraculously take a few loaves and feed 5,000 men plus women and children that you would ever forget that? Well, don't give yourself so much credit. Because what happens here, we see an amazing just expression of disbelief. This is how they say it. How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? How quickly they have forgotten the Holy One standing right in their midst who miraculously provided bread in the same desert conditions just two chapters previous. How is this possible that they have forgotten? Now, I'm not a good enough theologian or preacher to tell you how it is they forgot. But I will tell you this. I would venture to say by the analysis of my own life, that we are all familiar with the same phenomenon of, of, of this type of reaction in our own spiritual lives. Let me ask you a real honest question. How many times have you received an unexpected blessing or a long-awaited answer to prayer only to forget God's mercies as soon as you find yourself again in the similar dire straits? Has that ever happened to anyone in here? He just forgot. God shows his goodness in abundance and then by his hand leads you right into similar circumstances. And your reaction shows that you have no memory of the outpouring of the power of God in that previous circumstance. What I want to make clear here is that the disciples were not unbelievers. They were not willfully saying defiantly, God can't or God won't provide. That wasn't their thought at all. They weren't intentionally rejecting Christ's words and actions. Instead, they were disbelievers. Now you may think, well, what's the difference between unbelief and disbelief? Unbelief, and we'll talk more about it in a minute, talks about willfulness. Disbelieving comes from the fact that, that you and I live in a fallen material world. And it, it makes us, just living here, makes us unprepared to reflexively look to Christ. None of us in this room have as our first reaction to look to Christ. Now, we all want to, and sometimes we do better than others, but reflexively, that's not what we're doing. We rely, just like the disciples did, on our senses. 
What we see, what we hear, what we smell, what we taste, what we touch, that's what's defining reality for us. Can we all agree on this? We all struggle with that. If this story holds any instruction for us, it should awaken us to our own proneness to under, or to, to disbelief, our, our own tendency towards disbelief. See, in our natural, our flesh, we are of this world and we trust the reality of this world more than we trust the promises of God in the Bible. More than we trust the memories of Christ's past deliverances. But the Bible tells us in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it tells us something amazing that should, we should tattoo it somewhere where we can see it all the time. It says this, as we look not to the things that are seen, this, this, this material corporeal stuff, but to the things that are unseen. Why? For the things that are seen are transient. That chair you're sitting on is passing away. That job you have will someday not be there. The house you live in will someday be a pile of ashes. But the things that are unseen, by comparison, they're eternal. They're not going anywhere. They will... They have lasted long before you were ever thought of, and they will be here long after you have left this earth. They're eternal. And I'm not talking about streets of gold and gates of pearl. I'm talking about the truth of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus. The Bible says in the, in the Old Testament that great is the Lord. His mercy endures forever. Your mercy with me, you won't even stay 72 hours to listen to a great message. Your mercy doesn't endure with me forever, but the mercy of the Lord endures forever. So Jesus, similar to Mark 6, he asks them what they have on hand. And of course, just like in chapter 6, it's not nearly enough for their need. They find out they have seven loaves this time and a few small fish. But what they do is they do what you and I should do. They bring their meager supply to Jesus. And at his word, they prepare the crowd to receive whatever Jesus is going to do. And as we saw in chapter 6, Jesus gives thanks for what they have. How many of us, again, I don't want to show of hands, but how many of us are guilty of complaining and grumbling to God about what we don't have instead of giving thanks for what we have, believing that He can do whatever He wants to do with what you have. So Jesus gives thanks for what they have and He breaks it and He gives it to the obedient disciples who distribute it to the crowd. And in words similar to what we read two chapters ago, Mark 8, 8 says, and they ate... And we're satisfied. Their, their meager provisions became an all-you-can-eat buffet. And they took up the, le- the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. Christ's inexhaustible goodness provides more than enough for all who were present with plenty of leftovers to spare. What a patient reminder for the disciples of Jesus' limitlessness. 
The, ma- the master displays for them his power in the same way he did in chapter 6, but in a way so refreshing as to show forth his long-suffering with the frailty of their faith. Aren't you glad when Jesus does that? You come dragging your broken, frail faith to him. You say, it's all I got. And he never casts you out, does he? He always receives you and reminds you of his love and his patience, even in the middle of your broken faith. As the crowds are dismissed, the faith of the disciples should have been solidified. But as we'll see in the second and third acts of this drama, their understanding was yet weak. But Jesus persistently called them deeper and deeper in belief. As they left the Gentile regions, they sailed back into Jewish territory and they came to Dalmanutha, which is most likely, we don't really know where that is, but it's probably in the region of Magdala, where Mary Magdalene came from. And, and as soon as they get out of the boat, we've seen this happen a few times in this, in this gospel, as soon as they get out of the boat, they're accosted by argumentative Pharisees who were determined, as they always were, to make him answer to their tribunal. Now, what I want you to know is some of your versions will say they questioned them. I think the ESV says they argued with them, but say they questioned with them. Argued's probably better because the, the language indicates that they did not come to gain wisdom. They didn't come to ask Jesus questions so they might know. Their questioning instead was of a harassing nature. It was framed in order only to ensnare and, and to accuse Jesus. In their arrogance, in this accosting, in their arrogance, they demanded from him a sign from heaven so that they might verify his claims. Jesus, you're saying all this. Give us reason to believe. Isn't that strange? What had Jesus provided for literally hundreds of people at this point? Healings, deliverance. At his baptism, the voice of God spoke from the heavens. What else could they possibly want? They had tons of signs to examine, tons of signs to to investigate. But see, just like the curse of unbelief, they wanted something more. Oftentimes I'll watch videos of our, our missionary Ryan Denton talking to people at Texas Tech, and, and no matter how he answers their questions that they think are, are so well-framed, that always only leads to another question about the gospel. They never, no one in any video I've ever seen said, you know, that's a great point, Ryan. I think I'll become a believer now. No. Because unbelief traps you in a prison of questioning and doubting and asking and more and more. It's, a, it's an insatiable appetite. What did they want? They wanted a sign from heaven. Maybe they wanted to see Jesus commanding an angel army against the Romans. Or maybe they would have been satisfied if he'd walked over to the Red Sea and divided it a second time. What fools these people were. What absolute fools. While the disciples struggled in their disbelief, the Pharisees were guilty of something more. They were guilty of willful unbelief. See, their interrogation of Jesus was designed to justify their disobedience. It was designed to justify their self-righteousness. It was to deny or to justify their infidelity to the God 
who they appeared to be so pious towards. Twice in Matthew, on this issue of asking for a sign, Jesus defines what kind of people ask for a sign. He says, it's a wicked generation that asks for a sign. In the disciples, we saw our own proneness to disbelief. But in the Pharisees, we see persecution by unbelievers. And I don't want you to miss this point. What I mean here is that there's a, rea- there's a determination to reject what God declares to be true, or our determination rather, to de- reject what God declares to be true, will always result in hostility toward what he declares to be good and holy. It's inevitable. There's no such thing as a neutral unbeliever. You may consider yourself here today. Maybe you're here with a friend or or you're a guest. You just wandered in. And you may consider yourself to be an enlightened intellectual, an academic who has no need for such archaic concepts like sin and righteousness, heaven and hell, God and the devil. You may think, that you're wiser to leave these things to the unwashed masses, the ignorant peoples. But my friend, let me tell you, if I could look you right in the eyes and tell you, you are absolutely fooling yourself. You actually are expressing in your position and a hostility towards the demands, the commands, and the revelation of a holy God. You might remember... Before the apostle Paul was Paul, when he was Saul, and he was an unbeliever, though he thought he was in the good graces of God because of his self-made righteousness, what he did in that situation was he persecuted the church. And at the moment of his conversion, we read these words in Acts chapter 9. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Had had Saul ever thrown a rock at Jesus? No. Had he... Had he ever... You know, uh, was was he one of the ones that nailed Jesus to the cross? No. And so he asked this question, Who are you, Lord? And the voice said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And this is my point, that when we embrace unbelief willfully, when we say God cannot, God would not, God did not, when we embrace that, counter to what the word tells us what God has done, we are actually being hostile to Jesus himself. And Jesus reacted to this verbal assault by the Pharisees in a very intriguing way. We're told that he sighed deeply in his spirit. And clearly, this is a reference to his humanity. Jesus was completely exasperated by their continual unbelief, their continual hardness of heart. And yet, his sigh was actually a sign of his patience. Because he didn't consume them in holy wrath that day. But he left them to store up wrath against themselves for the judgment day. So if you're too smart for God, if you're casting aside his 
holy commandments and his revelation of himself. Let me just ask you, are you doing the same thing? In this day of God's patience, are you just storing up for yourself wrath against the day when God's great judgment will be revealed? Jesus says no sign will be given to that wicked generation, meaning no special sign tailored to their demands. There was plenty to see if they just opened their eyes, turned from their sin, but they were blind guides indeed. So Jesus got back in the boat, left them, and made his way back with the disciples toward Bethsaida, where he'd ministered before. There was no need for him to cast his pearls before these unbelieving swine like the Pharisees. They had hardened their hearts, and they wouldn't be persuaded by any sign or any word from Christ. And in the boat, sailing back across the Sea of Galilee, the disciples make a discovery. Someone had forgotten to pack the miracle bread. And just as they became aware of their mistake, Jesus utters these words. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What did Jesus mean there? Well, the Pharisees had just demanded a sign, and they did it other times as well. But during his trial, when Jesus is dragged before Herod, Luke tells us this. Herod was very glad... For he had long desired to see him, see Jesus, because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So what is this leaven of the Pharisees, leaven of Herod? The Pharisees demanded a sign to hopefully expose Jesus as a fraud. And Herod wanted to see a sign performed by Jesus to satisfy his own curiosity. For him, it was like going to a magic show. He just wanted to be entertained by Jesus. But the twelve, because of their disbelief, missed all of this. They could not connect the dots at all. In fact, they were not aware of any non-material thinking behind Jesus' warning at all. The only, they only, when Jesus said what he said about the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod, all they heard was a rebuke for the failure to bring an ample supply of food. That's all they heard. In low whispers, they disputed and argued with each other whose fault it was. Why did you leave the bread? Jesus is calling us out on it. What are we going to do in answer to an angry Jesus? I want you to see what's happening here. And I want you to just ask yourself if this relates to your own history, to your own experience. Do you see here what disbelief does to your soul? When you forget the essence of who Christ really is and what he's really done, it makes everything Christ says to us that is meant to warn us against danger or prepare us for our next assignment, it it makes it seem like a chastisement or a rebuke. And and when when we're under that, Since that everything Jesus is saying to us is a rebuke, it makes us assign blame to each other and try to win back his favor and to avert his holy gaze. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts and well aware of their fears, tells them that he's not talking about bread at all. 
Why would he be concerned about a lack of bread? Why should they be concerned about it? They had seen him feed over 9,000 people with 12 loaves and a few fish over a few days. He can easily supply exactly what they need and when they need it. What he's doing is he's warning them about the pervasiveness of unbelief. This this unbelief they had just been exposed to. Paul tells us twice in his writings that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little bit of yeast, this is what Paul means as, by illustration, a little bit of yeast can be put into a large lump of dough. You ladies who bake this know this. Bake, bake things know this. It can be put into a large lump of dough, and once it's in the dough, it can't be washed out, it can't be cut out, it can't be hoped or wished out. The whole lump is now infected with that yeast. And Jesus was warning them that any entertainment of the thoughts and attitudes of the Pharisees and of Herod would poison them. And it would lead to doubts. It would lead to unbelief and and their own demand for signs. And they would begin to question the Lord's truth. And what exactly was the leaven of the Pharisees? Well, in Luke 12, 1, Jesus says these words, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is... Hypocrisy. The Pharisees were guilty of duplicity. They analyzed and debated all the minutia of God's law, but they were never brought to repentance by their examination of it. Their hearts were hardened. Elsewhere in the New Testament, leaven is associated with boasting, malice, evil, reliance on self-righteousness and religious observances. All of these things have a tendency to seduce us into unbelief. And this is what Jesus warned the disciples of. They must soberly purge all viral attitudes from their lives and their hearts before they themselves are contaminated. Jesus' caution to the twelve is made forceful when he compares them to the Pharisees, pointing out that they don't yet perceive, they don't yet understand. He asks them if they too have hearts that are hardened, just like the Pharisees, after all that they had seen and heard. He's showing them that passive disbelief left unaddressed is the shortcut to active unbelief. In Mark 4, after Jesus begins teaching in parables, he tells his disciples that they, the twelve, have been given the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but those on the outside have not. And he quotes Isaiah to explain this reality to him. He says that they indeed might see but not perceive, that they indeed might hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And Christ now in the boat asks them if they've become like those Pharisees on the outside. Having eyes, he says, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Jesus is pointing out how pervasive, how transferable, how contagious unbelief is, and asking them to examine carefully how far they might have gone towards unbelief. So once again, in the grace of God, Jesus jogs their memory by recounting both the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 and the results, the miraculous results of each of those. So what can we learn from all of this? What we want to know is how do we pursue true 
and lasting belief. There are two main takeaways for us from this passage. And taking heed of these things helps us to be liberated from both the dullness of our own disbelieving and the unbelief that fights to influence us, whether it's coming from the world or coming from hypocrites and false converts right here in the church. First, we must consistently plead with the Holy Spirit to remind us of everything Jesus has said and done. The disciples would have been left in a precarious position if Christ had not patiently taught them, warned them, and reminded them. John fourteen twenty six, Jesus gives this incredible promise. He says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things, watch, and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The world, as we mentioned earlier, is too fallen. Our hearts are too distracted and apathetic to rescue ourselves from spiritual lethargy and interference. We need God's help to desire, to remember, to amend our waywardness, and to conform and obey. So what we need to do is confess often to God how incapacitated our faith really is. How small and how ineffective And to cry out to him for remembrance, for enlightenment, for wisdom. Do you remember the great promise of James chapter 1? It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, what's the remedy? Let him ask God. And what's the promise? Who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. So that's the first thing. Plead with the Holy Spirit to help you to um, remember and to have wisdom when you're faced with your own disbelieving. Second, call to remembrance often the mighty works of the Lord in your past. Your faith today may be small, but God, just like when the disciples brought those loaves to to the Savior, He expects you to exercise what faith you have. Psalm 77, 5 says this, I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Think of all that God has done. This means to remember what God has done for his people in the record of scripture. Turn through its pages often, to remind yourself of his goodness. Not only the miracles and provisions given to ancient saints, but heed what it tells you that God has done for you in Christ. The permanence of his work, the faithfulness of God. But also, remember the times in your own life when God has come through. How he sought you, how he saved you when you were lost. Remember all your answered prayers. He was good to you then. And can you imagine that he'll forsake you now? By no means. God forbid. He never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We are all prone to disbelief. And we can absolutely expect in this life to be misunderstood and persecuted by unbelievers. And the unbelief that we are exposed to is 
absolutely pervasive and infectious. But the promise is that we have a God who will never forsake us, who calls us to remember his goodness daily, and who has given us his spirit to remind us of whose we are. Let us then pursue with whole hearts his truth and believe in faith. Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, we just come before you, God, and we we confess our inconsistency and our disbelieving. And Lord, we do ask you to remind us both from your word and from our own personal testimonies the times when you have come through, Lord, and that we would rest our lives on your provision of deliverance, your faithfulness to your people, your promises kept. So, Lord, I ask that you would just deliver us, God, and, and protect us from our unbelieving, from, from the, the, the sin of unbelieving, God, by curing us of our dis- disbelieving. Lord, we thank you. We look to you and you alone only as the source of our truth, as the hope of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. If I could have our communion workers come as, as Natalie leads us in song, and so you can prepare while, while we're doing that. Thank you. One of the things that we celebrate when we come to the Lord's table is this command of Jesus that as often as we come, we do so in remembrance of him. And so if you want a cure this morning, a remedy for your disbelieving heart, then just meditate for a moment on the sacrifice that Jesus made to bring you near, represented by broken bread and a cup. Just remember that. If you're a believer, man, we welcome you to this table. If you are not yet a believer, then we ask you to just refrain from partaking with us it would be nothing to you i always make the reference it would be like you wearing my wedding ring it it, it would be a real ring but it wouldn't mean anything to you there'd be no benefit to you whatsoever and so if you're not if you have not become a believer in the lord jesus christ just just refrain from partaking this morning but but do this talk to me talk to pastor dave and let us tell you of all the joy all of the the freedom that comes with persecutions of following the Lord Jesus. For the rest of you, I'm going to invite you to come and receive the elements, and then we will go back to your seats and take them together. writes to the Corinthians, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, 
You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now let's give thanks together. Lord, we, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, the gift of your scriptures, the gift of this sacrament that help us to remember when we're so prone to forget. Lord, I pray that the taste of these elements and the truth behind them and the, and the, the union with Christ that is activated by the Holy Spirit when we partake would keep us in, in uh, remembrance of you throughout our week and that we would be drawn to rejoicing because of our memory. And God, we pray that you would be near to us and, and that you would sanctify us daily by your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I will speak this benediction over you from Psalm 105. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.